Okay, everybody, I think it's, uh, it's time we began. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Um, we are very fortunate tonight to have as our speaker um, Philip Goff. Um, Philip has recently, fairly recently, taken up a position at the University of Durham, um, coming there from uh, the CEU in Budapest previously. Um, his main interest is in consciousness, um, and how to fit it into uh, the scientific vision of the world. Um, and this particular talk, I understand, is about trying to um, fit a panpsychist picture of consciousness of the sort that Philip is well known for defending, together with uh, a libertarian view of um, free will. Uh, it promises to be really fascinating, um, so would you join me in welcoming Philip Goff? Brilliant, thank you very much Helen. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, how do we go about finding out what reality is like? I want to start with a bit of meta-metaphysics. Meta-metaphysics, pretty big thing in recent times, but it always seems to be sort of, a lot of it seems to be kind of logical questions, sort of technical questions about the kind of logical properties of the grounding relation, whether it's asymmetric or, which is all fine and good, but there doesn't seem as much discussion of, you know, what seems perhaps a more foundational question. How do we do it? How do we go about sitting in our armchairs, or not, as the case might be, how, how do we go about finding out what reality is like? That's what I want to start off thinking about here. I take it as almost universal consensus that a theory of reality needs to be able to account for the data of observation and experiment. Okay? But I think everyone has to say a little bit more than that because for any empirical data, there's always an infinite number of theories that could, in principle, account for that data. So we have to find some way of kind of choosing between them. The standard scientific approach is that we go for the simplest, or perhaps simplest, most parsimonious, most elegant, unified, perhaps in a more general sense, the most theoretically virtuous. Okay, so some people will just stop there, and I'm gonna call that position conservative naturalism. The view that uh, the way we have our best guess at what reality is like is to work out the simplest theory of reality that can account for the data of observation and experiment. This maybe captures how a lot of the public think about how we find out what reality is like. And uh, maybe a lot of philosophers implicitly or explicitly uh, adopt this sort of view. But I think there are, um, there, a case can be made that there are other metaphysical data, other things over and above observation and experiment that uh, a theory of reality has to account for. Perhaps the most plausible, sorry, I'm still eating my biscuit. I've lost track of the time. Um, perhaps the most plausible, in my view, is that the reality of consciousness. Nothing is more evident than the reality of one's own feelings and experiences. But I would say that this reality is known about not on the basis of observation and experiment, third-person observation experiment, um, 
but rather just in virtue of our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. So I think if, if one is a very strict conservative naturalist, you think, you know, the only data for metaphysics are observation and experiment, then I think you'd have no grounds for postulating subjective experience at all. And I think Daniel Dennett is wonderfully consistent on this. He thinks, you know, the only data for, for a theory of consciousness are uh, what can be observed from the third-person perspective. Um, so I think it's pretty plausible that the reality of subjective experience is a datum for metaphysics over and above the data of third-person observation and experiment. Now, that's, so that's a meta-metaphysical point. That doesn't automatically commit us to any metaphysical theory of consciousness. It could be that the, uh, the, the postulations we make to account for third-person observation experiment also happen to account for the reality of consciousness. I guess that would be something like the materialist position. But we can't assume that from the outset, right? It might be that that's next, that the, the datum of consciousness requires extra postulations, perhaps. And I think there are other possible candidates. I'm just going to gesture at some possible candidates. One might be mathematical truth, right? As well as what we know about the world through perception, um, we also know lots of a priori truths about reality through reason, uh, most obviously mathematical and logical truths. It's arguable that a theory of reality needs to account for the ground of those truths and also to account for the fact that we know them. So that might be an extra datum. Possibly the reality of value. David Enoch has argued <coughs> um, that when we involve ourselves in the act of deliberation, just ordinary deliberation, we presuppose the existence of irreducible normative truths. Um, and, and, and therefore, in order for deliberation to make sense, we need to commit to the existence of irreducible normative truths. Now, I can say, now there may be some conservative naturalists who might might, I'm not saying, you know, might be persuaded by Enoch's argument that uh, in order for deliberation to make sense, we have to presuppose irreducible normative truths, but they might say that in the absence of any observational evidence for the reality of irreducible normative truths, we should suppose there aren't any, and so we should suppose that deliberation is just a deluded activity. But I think one might accuse such a conservative naturalist of double standards, because the very empirical inquiry the conservative naturalist does commit to already involves a lot of anti-skeptical assumptions, like that there is an external world, we're not in the matrix, that, um, that we, careful use of our senses can tell us about that world, perhaps that induction works. And so you might think, why is it okay to make those anti-skeptical assumptions but it's not okay for David Enoch to make the anti-skeptical assumption that deliberation makes sense. Um, so you might think there's a double standard there. Another possibility, uh, maybe free will. So E.J. Lowe argues that our belief that we can respond to normative facts uh, presupposes the, the, that we have libertarian free will. So he argues that... Um, or he argues that normative facts are outside the causal order, they're not, they're not causally efficacious, and therefore you know, if, if, if all of our behaviour is, is fixed by prior causes, 
then normative facts just have no role to play in explaining our behaviour. So we need to suppose that we have the, a basic capacity to recognise and respond to normative facts in order for them to play a role in our behaviour. Now, again, you might have a conservative naturalist who might read low and think, OK, I, I think that's right. I think uh, in order for us to be able to res really respond to normative facts, there must be such a thing as libertarian free will. But in the absence of any observational grounds for believing in libertarian free will, we shouldn't believe in it. And so we should conclude that we can't, in fact, respond to normative facts. But again, you might think there's a worry about double standards there. Um, you know, that... Um, the conservative naturalist, in, just in taking empirical inquiry seriously, makes a whole load of anti-sceptical assumptions. Why is it okay to make those and not okay to make Lowe's anti-sceptical assumption that we're able to respond to normative facts? Okay, so I've, I, I'm not taking myself to have made anything like a conclusive case for any of these. Um, I'm, I'm just gesturing at the, the, that there's... It's arguable. There are reasonable, not obviously ridiculous lines of argument to expand the data of metaphysics beyond observation and experiment. Okay, why is this? Why am I talking about this? This is, I think, it's important in its own right. But I've come to think that a lot of there's a lot of cross talking across purposes between philosophers because the these meta metaphysical commitments are not made explicit. So, for example, I defend panpsychism, the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of reality. I've often found in discussions, both with amateur and professional philosophers, uh, that it becomes apparent that someone's arguing against me by assuming something like conservative naturalism and then arguing on that basis against panpsychism. But I agree with that, right? I agree that if... Your starting point is conservative naturalism, that, you know, that the whole, we should just be going off the data of observation experiment, then panpsychism is ridiculous, because there doesn't seem to be any physics or, you know, third-person observation experiment don't seem to be telling us that the particles are conscious or the consciousness is everywhere. In fact, as I've said, I think if you're a strict conservative naturalist, you shouldn't think consciousness is anywhere. And I think, you know, Daniel Dennett is, is quite consistent on this. Um, so I think, so my claim would be, um, if you commit to a sort of liberal naturalist view where, where the reality of subjective experience is a data in its own right, then panpsychism becomes plausible. And that's still wildly controversial. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment. But at least we'd be having the right argument there. Okay, so, so coming on to the topic for today... Um, okay, more right for time. Um, so I'm going to be talking about a view I'm going to call pan-libertarianism, the view that libertarian free will is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of reality. I'm not going to be claiming this is true or even plausible. I'm going to be arguing for a conditional, that if you are the kind of liberal naturalist who, who does take, like E.J. Lowe, uh, take libertarian free will to be a, a basic datum, then pan-libertarianism starts to be a view you should take very seriously. Right, so it's the conditional. Um, you know, so it ought to be possible. I mean, it ought to be, po I, it ought to be possible for someone who's a conservative naturalist or just someone who's, 
who doesn't believe in libertarian free will, a compatibilist, or hard time, to still assess that conditional, right? If there is libertarian free will, then um, this is a plausible. And you might agree with that. You might, you might end up saying, yeah, I agree with that conditional, but I reject the antecedent. I mean, just to make the point, you know, so I think it ought to be possible for Daniel Dennett to assess the conditional if, you know, the reality of subjective experience is a datum in its own right over and above the date of observation experiment, then, say, panpsychism is plausible. You ought to be able to address that condition, but you don't often get that sort of nuanced distinction. You know, like, I agree with that conditional, but... I mean, you know, you might reject both, but I'm just saying we need more nuance in... Start, at starting point, you know, what are our meta-metaphysical assumptions, and then, conditional on those, what do we think is plausible? Okay, so, so that's the claim I'm talking about today. Oh, I've gone backwards. Okay, so I'm going to briefly outline and defend the Rossellian monist approach to consciousness, because I think the view I'm going to be talking about is, is, is going to be a form of that view. I'm going to outline how I understand libertarianism in general, and I'm going to try and defend its coherence, but not its truth, just its coherence against certain charges that it's incoherent. And then I'm going to outline pan-libertarianism and argue that it's preferable to other forms of libertarianism. Okay, let's get on with this, making good time. Uh, sorry, I'm also advertising my books. Uh, so anyway, well, this is, I'm just going to briefly introduce this theory that I've defended at length elsewhere, for example, in this book. Um, so so, the, the, so we're talking about the Rossellian monist theory of consciousness, and the starting point here is the problem of consciousness. We need to begin with the problem of consciousness, which I take to be the, the, the challenge of working out how consciousness fits into our overall theory of reality. So if you study uh, brain neuroscience, you'll learn about, if you learn about the science of the brain, you'll learn about uh, action potentials and calcium chambers and various kinds of neurotransmitter and overall a complicated story of electrochemical signaling. Um, what you, what, on the face of it, Prima facie, what you won't learn about just in terms of studying, you know, what's in the brain, you won't learn about feelings and experiences, right? Uh, and yet, of course, each of us knows in our own case that feelings and experiences exist. Um, but on the face of it, it seems the whole, the whole story of what's going on metaphysically in the brain from the perspective of neuroscience could go on quite as well in the complete absence of feelings and experiences. Um, and so we're left, I think, with this deep puzzle. How, here's the way I like to put it. How does what we know about ourselves from the inside uh, fit together with what empirical science tells us about the brain from the outside? So two familiar options here. One, dualism, that these are just two completely different kinds of thing. Uh, you know, consciousness... Feelings and experiences are non-physical, outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. Alternatively, physicalism or materialism, I use these interchangeably. Uh, that, that, that what we know about ourselves from the inside can be accounted for in terms of what empirical science tells us about the brain from the outside. Okay? Um, I think there are big problems with um, you know, familiar problems with both of these positions. I'm not gonna, this is not the topic of today, but many people think dualism faces worries about causal closure. If, the, if, as many think, the physical world forms a sort of causally closed system, 
then there doesn't seem to be anything left for non-physical consciousness to do in the generation of behaviour. Uh, problems with physicalism, we have you know, the classic arguments, the knowledge argument, the conceivability argument, which purport to, uh, to show that you just can't account for subjective experience in terms of the kind of stuff physical science reveals to us about the brain. Okay, obviously huge debates that I've tried to defend at great length, both of these problems. Um, but it's really when you're motivated by both of these difficulties for the traditional options that one turns to uh, the Rossellian monist position I'm going to introduce now. Okay, so I'll start with the panpsychist version. Um, so this is the alternative book I talk about this. The difference between these two books is one, one is... Um, the first one is academic, and the second one is more recent, aimed at a general audience, but both cases I defend some length this position. Okay, so Russellian panpsychism, I think the best way to put it is it has a negative aspect and a positive aspect. The negative aspect is the, is the thesis that physical science tells us a lot less than we perhaps ordinarily think about the nature of matter. So I think, you know, in the public mind, Physical science is on its way to giving us this complete story about the nature of space and time and matter. But according to Rossellian panpsychism, it turns out on reflection, and this is so-called because it's connected to certain things Russell defended in the analysis of matter in 1927, although he didn't quite defend a panpsychist version of it. I'll get to a view that's a little bit closer to his view in a moment. Um, so according to Russell and Panpsychism, it turns out on reflection that actually physical science is confined to telling us about the behaviour of matter, about what it does, or, or more precisely its behavioural dispositions. So physics tells us, for example, that matter has mass and charge, and we can completely characterise these. These are completely characterised in physics in terms of behaviour, things like attraction, resistance, uh, sorry, attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. This is all about behavioural dispositions. Uh, physics tells us nothing about what has become referred to in these contexts as the intrinsic nature of matter, what matter is in itself independently of, of how it behaves. Okay, uh, different from the paper, I'm trying out a sort of way of defining in, in, intrinsic nature here that may or not may work out, but I want to try it on you. So, property P is an intrinsic nature property if and only if the essential nature of P can be defined without reference to any properties non-identical with P, that should say. So the thought is that when we're talking about behavioural dispositions, the, the behavioural disposition is always defined in terms of another property, namely its manifestation. So fragility is defined in terms of breaking, um, flammability in terms of burning, so you always define it in terms of another property. Whereas the idea would be an intrinsic nature property, you can define its essential nature without talking about anything else. Okay, so there is this thought that, um, you know, physics tells us loads of rich information about what stuff does, but it doesn't tell us about its intrinsic nature. Um, so, arguably, there's this huge hole in our scientific story of the universe. The positive aspect of Rossellian panpsychism is to fill that hole with consciousness, right? Just the claim is that experiential properties constitute the intrinsic nature of matter. Um, 
So it's, it's a beautifully simple, elegant way of bringing together what we know about ourselves from the inside and what matter, uh, sorry, and what physical science tells us about matter from the outside. So, so the idea is that uh, there's just, this is not dualism, there's just matter, maybe particles or fields, you know, nothing supernatural, but matter can be described, as it were, from two perspectives. Physical science describes, as it were, from the outside in terms of its behavior, what it does, but in term, from the inside, as it were, in terms of its intrinsic nature, it's constituted of forms of consciousness. So if you think about your own brain, the thought is, you know, when brain science, what brains, what neuroscience is talking about your brain is, is what it does and what its parts do. But when you're thinking about your feelings and experiences, you're, you're attending to at least part of the intrinsic nature of your brain. That's the thought. Um, okay. Um, you might think it's a bit weird to think kind of consciousness is everywhere. Um, in that case, you might be interested to know that there is a non-panpsychist version of this view, according to which the intrinsic nature of matter is not experiential, but proto-experiential, where what we're talking about here are um, uh, intrinsic nature properties that are not themselves experiential properties, but in, in certain complicated combinations constitute experiential properties. Um, so there's lots of, you know, back and forth about the relative advantages and disadvantages of panpsychism versus panprotopsychism. I'm not going to go into that, just to say um, panprotopsychism is no more parsimonious than panpsychism. You know, you might think this is really indulgent to think there's consciousness everywhere. But um, the, um, both of these views hold that there's an intrinsic nature to matter that goes beyond its dispositional properties that science reveals to us doesn't seem to be any less, any more parsimonious to hold it's non-experiential. Um, you would have a more parsimonious view, and this is what some of you might have been thinking already, if you just get rid of intrinsic natures. Why not just commit to the kind of dispositional properties science tells us about? This is the pan-dispositionalist view, for example, my colleague Stephen Mumford defends. And there are a couple of things that are standardly said in response here. I'll just whiz over this. Um, you know, there are arguments that try to show that pan-dispositional worlds are just unintelligible uh, because sort of everything's defined in terms of everything, something else and you get a kind of vicious circularity. Uh, I, but I, I think the more crucial objection is that the classic anti-physicalist arguments such as the knowledge argument and the conceivability argument are really, what they're doing is they're trying to show that pan-dispositional worlds even if they're intelligible, they, they, they lack consciousness. So, so I think, you know, if you think about the knowledge argument, it's trying to say, Mary knows all the dispositional properties in the brain, but she doesn't know what it's like to see red, or the, the conceivability argument saying, you know, you can the starting point is you can conceive of all the dispositional properties of a human being without the consciousness properties. So it's trying to say that if we were in a pan-dispositionalist world without intrinsic natures, there'd be no consciousness. There is consciousness, therefore we're not in a pan-dispositionalist world. All right, that's... I'm, 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 I think I've missed time this. I'm, I'm trying to hurry up to give you an overview of these to get on to the, the new stuff. All right, one more slide before we get on to the pan-libertarianism. 
Um, well, I'll just whiz through this very quickly. There's an, another orthogonal distinction between, uh, as well as panpsychism versus panprotopsychism, weak emergentism versus strong emergentism. Uh, so the weak emergentist thinks that facts at the macro, uh, macro level consciousness are wholly grounded in facts about micro level consciousness or proto consciousness. Whereas the strong emergentist thinks facts about macro-level consciousness are fundamental facts in their own right, causally dependent on, but not grounded in facts about micro-level consciousness. Uh, I was going to go on to say there's a sort of... Once you're in the ballpark of strong emergentism, there's a pretty strong simplicity argument for the panpsychist version, but... Uh, I'm going I'm to move on because the reason I'm raising this is that the view we're going to be discussing looks like it's going to be a version of this strong emergentist panpsychism. But anyway, okay, so let's get on to, that's the panpsychist stuff, let's get on to libertarianism. So I'm going to briefly outline how I think of libertarianism and defend its coherence, and then I'll go on to this pan-libertarian view. Um, so I think the best way to introduce libertarianism is in contrast to the standard view of mental causation in analytic philosophy, according to which the actions of agents are caused by their mental states. So suppose we've got Sarah in the audience who has a desire to ask a question, a belief that raising her hand will allow her to ask a question, and we might say that belief and that desire cause her hand to go up. That's a sort of standard picture of how we understand very, very roughly, mental causation. The libertarian, in contrast, adopts an agent causation view of mental causation, according to which free actions are caused by agents and not their mental states. So it's Sarah. Sarah that causes her arm to go up, not her beliefs and desires. I'm going to take libertarianism to be the conjunction of the agent causation view and the view that free decisions... Um, of agents are uncaused. So, so it's not that Sarah's actions are uncaused. Sarah caused their action, but Sarah's decision to raise her arm lacks a prior cause. Now, there's a very common objection to libertarianism, which tries to press the charge that we really have no way of distinguishing between an, a so-called uncaused decision and a just random, senseless event. And the thought was, you know, if Sarah's action of raising her hand cannot be causally explained in terms of any of her, you know, beliefs, desires, character, then it looks just like a kind of random event, like the random decay of a radioactive isotope. I think E.J. Lowe, who's kind of influenced my thinking on this, has a good response to this. He says, well, look, the difference, if we're thinking about rational choice, the difference between <coughs> rational choice and just random happenings is that rational choice essentially involves responsiveness to normative facts. So let's say that um, Sarah had a useful contribution to make to the discussion, and that, and that, that fact counted in favour of her asking a question, right? So there's a, there's a normative fact that the fact that she had a useful contribution to make counted in favour of her asking a question. It could be that in deciding to raise her hand, Sarah is responding to that normative fact that, that she has a reason to ask a question. Um, 
And it seems to me that's, as, as it did to Lowe, that that's sufficient to, distinct, to, to distinguish it from just a senseless act, that it essentially involves responding to normative considerations, normative facts. I think Lowe's response is a good one, but I think maybe it's a, it's a partial, partial answer. Because I think not all of our decisions involve responsiveness to normative facts. So the example I give in the paper, we imagine uh, Anushka thinks that um, veganism is morally obligatory, but she has craving for the cheese in front of her. She's wrestling. This is a moral dilemma I face a lot. Uh, she's, and she ends up just giving in, as it were, and just consuming the cheese. Um, so I think this is not, not necessarily a case where she's responding to a normative fact. She's responding to her conscious inclination, her conscious craving for the cheese. Um, so, you know, so some people might be perhaps saying, well, in this case, our conscious inclinations are causing the decision. But at least that doesn't, that's not how it ordinarily seems to be. Um, perhaps in some cases where you're just overpowered by hunger, you're sort of compelled to eat. But most of the time, it seems like when we have a feeling of hunger, that it seems like we can choose whether or not to give into it. So remember, I, I, I'm not arguing for the truth of libertarianism. I'm just trying to defend its coherence against uh, these arguments. <coughs> To the contrary. So I'm going to call it, so I'm going to distinguish here in these two things I've just been talking about. I'm going to call one rational agency, which essentially involves responding to normative facts, or at least what are perceived to be normative facts by the agent, whereas uh, a rational agency is where one responds not to normative facts. In making a choice, one responds not to normative facts, but to one's conscious inclinations. Um, but I think this is also sufficient to make it a choice rather than a random act, right? I think the fact that it essentially involves an agent responding to her conscious inclinations is sufficient to distinguish it from just a random arbitrary act. So I think, I mean, and this might make it clearer the next slide. I'm inclined to think a lot of analytic philosophy of mind really lumps together two very different things and calls them desire. This is the whole kind of Humean way of thinking about these things. On the one hand, what I'm going to call conscious inclinations, things, a felt craving for something, hunger, thirst, lust, or something sophisticated, lust for power, maybe. I want it, you know. As opposed to just a more, a more general notion of psychologically aiming at something. For example, you know, Anushka's being psychologically aimed at not eating cheese because she thinks veganism is morally obligatory. So she mightn't have a kind of felt a craving for that, she might have a craving to the contrary. And I think so when we blur both of these together and just call them both desire, I think we blur together this distinction I'm trying to make between rational and irrational agency. So, you know, on the one hand, you might have uh, the irrational action of Anushka giving in to her craving and consuming cheese. I mean, you might think that's irrational. Note I'm using irrational in a quite specific, defined way here. That seems to be very different from the following case of rational action where David decides to eat cheese because he knows it will give him pleasure and judges that this gives him reason to eat it. So he's not giving in to a craving, he's just, he knows, and it might, he might not even feel a he might not even have a craving. It might be only he enjoys it once he eats it. 
It's a judgment that if he eats it, it will, it will be enjoyable. And that gives him reason to eat it. That's a completely different thing, it seems to me. So it seems to me like, you know, you know most of the time when we're thinking about food or choosing a restaurant, or choo you know, we're not sort of drip, we're not driven by our hunger. <laughs> you know, you sort of look at the menu and you think, I would enjoy that. And so all the, all the, I would enjoy this more. So I think these are just two completely different notions of desire, if you like. And um, it's very important to distinguish them. Okay, so, all right, that's the libertarianism. Let's move on to the fun stuff. Okay, I've caught up. So, pan-libertarianism. So, I'm going to take this to be a form of... Am I causing problems moving? A form of powers realism, the view that causal facts are grounded in the causal powers of objects... On, on a standard form of powers realism, a power is essentially defined in terms of its stimulus and its manifestation. Um, so, as, so, for example, uh, you know, the stimulus of fragility is being knocked or something. The manifestation is breaking. The stimulus of flammability is being near a naked flame or something. And then the, uh, the manifestation is burning. Whereas, and, and also in the standard view, manifestations of powers at earlier times stimulate powers at later times. So you've got one power manifests, the manifestation stimulates the next power, its manifestation stimulates the next power, and so on, like dominoes. On the pan-libertarian view, powers have only manifestations, and their bearers freely choose when to manifest them. And the thought is this will go right down to the base, the, the micro level, where we'll find purely irrational agents. Right, so I distinguish these rational and irrational agency. Human psychology is a complicated mixture of the two, but many non-human animals, I take it, might be purely irrational agents. Uh, that they're responding to their inclinations, they're not responding to uh, normative facts facts about objective reasons. Okay, so that's the, that's the first description of the view. Now you might think, well, how, how on earth is this consistent with observation if, if, you know, particles or whatever are just, you know, choosing what to do, freely choosing, why is there not just chaos? Well, my suggestion is that the, the pan-libertarian can start to respond to this by, um, in terms of the following my view looks to be quite plausible principle, at least in a libertarian. Remember, we're discussing the conditional plausibility. If you're a libertarian, how plausible is this view? Okay, so it's the first principle is the relevant one, desire magnetism. If there is a purely irrational conscious subject S, such that S has a strong conscious inclination to phi, and S has a capacity to phi in response to its strong conscious inclination to phi, and is aware of having this capacity, then S is inevitably going to try to phi, unless something removes S's capacity to phi before she has a chance to act on it. Um, so, you know, if you've got a, in the case of um, the Anushka case we're discussing, you know, she's torn between her craving for cheese and her moral belief that it's morally impermissible. But if you've got a very young infant who really desires chocolate and doesn't have the capacity to rationally deliberate, and they can get the chocolate, they're going to go for it. 
Uh, that's the kind of thought here. I've been raising an infant while I was thinking about these things. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe it's not quite true in the case of an infant because they might get distracted or they might want something else. Or, but if we're thinking of a very, very unbelievably simple, psychologically simple subject that just has one unidirectional conscious inclination, knows it can get it, uh, is able to act on that, and knows it's able to act on that, I want to say it's, it's inevitable that it's going to act on it unless something stops it. This is sort of the polar opposite principle to one that Richard Swinburne defended in the context of thinking about perfectly rational agents. Um, well, maybe I won't get, go into this for the sake of time, but um, he actually thinks God's uh, perfect goodness follows logically from God's omnipotence and omniscience. Basically, so he thinks, you know, people fail to... I mean, it gets back to the sort of old Socratic questions. Why do people do what they ought not to do? Swinburne thinks either because they have wrong beliefs about what they ought to do or because they're, you know, there's, there's, there's desires pushing in the other direction. But God knows what she ought to do, has no... Uh, conscious inclination to the, the contrary, so she's inevitably going to, um, to, do, to do what she ought to do. Uh, so I'm, anyway, I'm, regardless of what you think of that, I'm making the kind of polar opposite, raising the polar opposite thesis about purely irrational agents, right? That if they have a conscious inclination to do something, they can act on it. They can't rationally deliberate. They're inevitably going to go for it. Uh, wrong way. Uh, so, okay, so with this principle in hand, I think the pan-libertarian can explain why the, we find ourselves in a predictable world. They can postulate that micro-level entities at earlier times cause micro-level entities at later times to have strong conscious inclinations to act in a certain way, and the later, such that the later micro-level entities are able to act on those inclinations and are aware of that fact. Um, so in line with the principle we just discussed, it's inevitable that they're going to act and we get in that way and we get a predictable world. So it sort of looks like a deterministic world, but it is a deterministic world in some sense. Maybe it depends how you define determinism, I guess. Uh, okay, now here's a common question you might have. Well, in what sense is it inevitable uh, that particles... Have you talked about it's inevitable that they're going to do this? Uh, maybe there's some options here. My colleague Stephen Mumford has a notion of um, um, dispositional necessity as distinct from metaphysical necessity. I think it might be an option there. But for the moment, I'm going to keep trying just with the idea that it's just metaphysical necessity. It's inevitable in the sense that it's metaphysically necessary. In any possible world where you've got particles with the same conscious inclinations, uh, the same capacities, they're going to act the same. Okay, but then you might think, well, if it's, if it's metaphysically necessary that they behave in this way, in what sense could they have done otherwise, right? Uh, and then I want to say in response to that, well, they could have done otherwise in the sense that it's part of the essential nature of the causal power in question that it could have done otherwise. So the reason I've got a picture of an evil God here is to give a theological analogy to make this plausible. So could God have tortured kids for fun? I want to say yes, because God's all-powerful, so she can do anything. It's part of the definition of being all-powerful. You can do anything, and so you, that implies you can torture kids. But there's no possible world in which God tortures kids for fun, because God's perfectly good. Uh, but she doesn't torture kids for fun. Uh, so similarly, I want to say, 
Uh, it's part of the, the causal capacity uh, of particles that they, um, that they could have done otherwise, at the very least that they could have not acted. But uh, because they've got very simple conscious inclinations, they can't rationally deliberate, it's inevitable that they're going to uh, behave in the way they in fact do. Okay, so I think that's consistent. I'm sure there's a lot to discuss there, but that's the claim. Uh, something I didn't include in the paper, um, thinking how you, how you fit this in with probabilistic causation. And basically, I want to just build it all into the manifestation. I forgot to put in this in the paper, but um, I think for time constraints, I'll skip over it. Okay, so last five or eight minutes. What's the advantage of this? Uh, remember, it's the conditional, you know, if you're a libertarian, what's the, why should you take this seriously? So if you're not a libertarian, I think you can still address the conditional, you know, if one was a libertarian. So I think the biggest advantage is, it, is it, it's a good response to what Randolph Clark calls the uniformity of causal power objection. And that is simply that in most libertarian views, causal relations in the inanimate world are radically different from causal relations involving agents. So, you know, a standard libertarian view, you know, in, in the inanimate world, you've got what I call causation by compulsion, you know, one event compelling another, compelling the next, com it's got event causation. And then suddenly, in, perhaps in human agents, or if you're Helen, perhaps animals, simpler kinds of animals, you get this radically new thing, you know, human creatures able to freely choose, uh, however you spell that out. Um, and it just looks like some kind of really magical different thing that just pops up. So I suspect, I mean, a lot of people have an intuition that libertarianism is sort of in tension with science, even though, you know, there's no peer-reviewed scientific article demonstrating its falsity. I think it might be something to do with this. People think, you know, it has a conception of human agency or perhaps animal agency that seems so different to the scientific picture of the world more generally. Pan-libertarianism completely removes this by offering a unified theory of nature involving only one form of causal interaction, right? All causation is agential, right? So that's the main attraction. It, it's a completely unified picture of reality. Um, okay. But you might think, well, is that really true? Uh, even if particles, in some sense, activate their manifestations, you might think this has little to do with human choice, which is essentially directed at achieving certain goals. You know, if I decide to get up and get a beer, I'm, you know, I'm consciously aimed at that goal of getting a beer. I don't think a pan-libertarian should say the particles are, you know, consciously, like the electrons, consciously saying, get away to the other electron or something, you know, is aware of what it's trying to do. They're not cognitively sophisticated enough. I think they should say that the options available to the particle are represented to it as just sort of brute options at the minimum. Just do, where in principle they could not do. So you might think, well, we've still got this radical divide in nature. Not very theoretically attractive. Here's a response the pan-libertarian might make. They might say, well, they might tell, I think they could potentially tell a story of how adult human agency intelligibly, intelligibly um, develops from something, rough, something roughly similar to the kind of agency we're supposing particles have. So I think they should say that um, human infants, the agency of human infants is in some 
crucial way analogous to the agency of particles, although, of course, massively, massively more complex. So what they can say is, well, the, you know, the options available to a human infant are also represented to it as brute options. You know, a very young human infant, maybe a fetus or an embryo, if you like, are, are presented to it as just brute options. And what it actually has, what, what it actually has, the, has the power to do on this view is to make changes in its brain. But the infant isn't, isn't aware that that's what it's got the power to do. The infant just thinks, I can do this, I can do that. Uh, and it feels inclined to do some of those things and not do others, right? So it's just brute options. And then, as the, as the story goes on here, I'm imagining they tell, as the infant develops, those brute options come to be represented in terms of their distal effects, like raising an arm, just as the buzzing, blooming confusion, to use William James's phrase, of experience comes to be represented as objects in an environment. So you have a developmental story where you go from meaningless experience, brute options, comes to, uh, comes to, to represent uh, an environment with possible options, possible actions in that environment. So the idea is in this way we can remove that worry about a divide in nature, we can tell a story, we can say basically adult human agency is just what you get when you combine the kind of form of agency a particle has plus very sophisticated mental representation. All right, that's the thought. Um, okay, I'm, 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 I'm going to skip, skip over very much more quickly. The second option I imagine that it might have just follows from the more general panpsychist position, which is... Uh, in that you don't have to be a dualist. I think most forms of libertarianism, whether you're a substance or a property dualist, are forms of dualism. That's a kind of unattractive division in nature. Um, whereas a panpsychist can think just that the brain and the agent are the physical states. Uh, sorry, that the. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, the brain agent and its physical states. Sorry, let me read. <laughs> the agent and its mental states are simply the intrinsic nature of certain parts of the brain and its physical states. Okay, so a much more simple, unified um, picture of nature. Also consistent with causal closure. Because you've just got physical stuff, right? Conscious, mental stuff is the intrinsic nature of physical stuff. Um, it's not consistent with micro-causal closure, the view that everything has a micro-physical cause or a cause that's grounded in a micro-physical cause. But I'm less and less convinced that we do have reason to accept that. Certainly. There's no peer-reviewed scientific papers arguing that, you know, any large part of the brain, its causal powers are completely determined by its quarks, right? Or even its neurons. Um, so I'm less and less convinced we, we do have reason to accept microphysical causal closure as opposed to physical causal closure. Okay, so... Um, oh, right. I'm finished quicker than I expected. Okay, so, so that's the kind of idea. So um, uh, I, I've, I've, I've not argued for the truth or even the plausibility of, of, of pan-libertarianism. I've tried to say that uh, um, if you are a libertarian, this is an attractive view, I've tried to argue that it's coherent and consistent with observation to suppose that particles have libertarian free will. And furthermore, that if you think humans have libertarian free will, then it's an attractive position. Or if you think we're free, you probably should think particles are as well. That's it. Thank you.